Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see all of you. It's the second Sunday in Lent. and This is the second sermon in a series entitled To Care and Not to Care, based upon T.S. Eliot's poem, Ash Wednesday, which is about his conversion to Christianity. And I assume that most of you don't know too much about T.S. Eliot. He was a pretty weird guy, very quirky and fastidious. Do you know the word fastidious? We haven't had a word for the day in a while, so let's let this be our word for the day. On the count of three, we're all going to say fastidious together. Ready? One, two, three. Fastidious. Well done, especially this section over here. Fastidious means excessively particular and critical or demanding and hard to please. So do you know a fastidious person? Are you a fastidious person? Some of you are looking down the aisle or the rows at one another right now. But Eliot was just that. He was also a connoisseur of cheese and a collector of umbrellas with handmade handles, which is kind of weird. He was not handsome. His um, wife's friend described him as grim and gaunt. So he was critical. That's not very nice, but he was critical, weird, unattractive, and incredibly intelligent and sensitive, which people with that combo oftentimes struggle relationally with friends. And Elliot did. This is what he wrote his brother back in America about life in London. He said, it's like being always on dress parade. One can never relax. It's a great strain. People have no pity for one's mistakes and stupidities. They see your They seek your company because they expect something particular from you. And if they don't get it, they drop you. They're always intriguing and cabaling. One must be very alert. They are insensitive and easily become enemies. Sounds a little bit like middle school. And so maybe we can all relate to him a little bit more now. He was very, very lonely because he was cut off from his family during World War I. And he had a tumultuous and terrible marriage with a beautiful woman who was really only interested in him because he was famous. And at the height of his fame, he had a nervous breakdown. And it's in the recovery from that breakdown that he wrote the most famous poem of the 20th century, The Wasteland, which is uh, 
a difficult poem to read. It's about a society in decline marked by spiritual and moral bankruptcy. One line is this, I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lose their bones. But it was Eliot who had lost all hope and meaning and purpose in life. So I wonder this morning if you know what it's like to lose hope in life. It was after this that Eliot wrote the poem, Ash Wednesday, and the line, teach us to care and not to care. The beginning of the poem and the end of, of the poem. Teach us to care again about our own lives, the world around us, other people, and teach us not to care about anything in this world more than we care about you, God. That's when he became a Christian. In other words, teach us to truly live again. So what do we need this morning to begin to truly live in our lives now, even in the season of Lent? Three points this morning. The conflict, the context, and the calling. Don't normally alliterate, but you're welcome. There you go. First of all, the conflict. In the first paragraph here in our passage, beginning with verse 31, we find a watershed moment in the book of Mark. It's this conflict between Jesus and Peter, who is the de facto leader of the disciples. And verse 32 tells us that Peter took Jesus aside. Now imagine this. The gospel of Mark moves very fast. Peter's already seen so much. Beginning of chapter eight, Jesus feeds, miraculously feeds 4,000 people. Peter's also seen him heal the deaf, the blind, the sick. He's seen him walk on water. He's seen him calm a storm in the midst of the sea that the disciples thought they were going to drown in. He's been a witness to all of that. And yet he has the audacity, or better yet, the impudence to take Jesus aside. This word, take in Greek is a very aggressive word. And the text actually doesn't say aside. It literally says to himself. So we can translate verse 32, Peter pulled Jesus to himself and began to rebuke him. So not a, a one word or one comment rebuke, notice the verb tense, but an ongoing one with many words. Impudent might be the best word to describe this. The word rebuke, it's also an aggressive word. It's the same word that Mark uses of Jesus when he interacts with demons, he rebukes them. So this isn't simply boldness. This is disrespectful and even filled with scorn. And with whom? Well, with Jesus. But remember a few weeks ago when I preached on Mark chapter two and the paralytic being healed, Jesus in that tells the man that his sins are forgiven. It's this indirect but very clear claim to divinity. And so this is impudence with God. Right after Jesus, as God in the flesh, has said plainly, notice that word, what must happen. And Peter says, no, no way. Your will will not be done. And I wonder if we know this, if we know this type of impudence with God. I think we do. Thomas Fitch, who leads our youth ministry, he went to Alaska recently in order to photograph the Northern Lights. He's a photographer. And I learned something fascinating from him when he returned. And, and everyone who's ever considering a trip to see the Northern Lights needs to listen to this. Because if you go there to see the Northern Lights, you can't actually see them with your naked eye. And some of the folks who went on the trip with Thomas didn't realize that before they got there. It's because our eyes have both cones and rods. Remember seventh grade biology? Cones are what enable us to see color. Our rods are what 
enable us to see black and white and our rods are employed at night because we need more detail at night and we see more detail in black and white. The northern lights come out at night when our, co- our cones aren't active and so we can't see the color. They just look milky white and wispy like clouds and people can't actually see them except through a, f- a video uh, or, or, or a picture. So all those things that you've seen, they're just that, pictures and videos. That's my public service announcement for the day. But here, here's my point, and that is Peter can't see all the color of what Jesus is talking about, and neither can we. Whether it's something that's been revealed to us circumstantially, some sort of sadness, some sort of unanswered prayer, unwanted situation or result or some suffering, and, and this is what our, our lives are enduring. Peter later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, there are some things, if necessary, we will be grieved at various times by these trials. So at some point, he understood what was happening. So maybe it's something circumstantially revealed that is a must. Or maybe it's something revealed biblically, something we hear in God's word. We don't want it. We, we don't believe it. We don't desire it, but it's there. Something to believe, some way to live that, that the scriptures say, if this, this is the way to life. This is the path to life. This is the path not to life. And we don't want it because in our finitude and our fallenness, our sin and our brokenness, we can't see fully as God sees. And in the shock and sadness and anger of partial sight, we all do with God what Peter does here with Jesus. We try to take him to ourselves and we tell him no. Because we all, let's be honest, we all have our agendas with God. We all know what it's like to make him a means to a greater end of something else, which by the way, is so much of the story of Abraham and Sarah. So is he just that for you this morning? Just a means to a greater end. That's the conflict. But that brings me to point to the context. And and when I say context, I mean the context of our passage here in relation to all of the book of Mark. And there's two parts that I want for you to understand so that we can understand more fully what's happening here. And the first part is what happens immediately before this conflict. And that is Peter has one of his highest, greatest moments with Jesus here verses 31 through 36. It's one of his lowest, but immediately before this, he has one of his highest moments. What happens is that Jesus in the passage immediately before takes the disciples from Bethsaida, which was a very Jewish, very simple rural village. And he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, which is much more urban and 25 miles away, but also couldn't be more different because it was thoroughly pagan, even though it was still in the midst of of Israel. Herod the Great, the king, uh, when Jesus was born, he tried to kill him. He had built a temple for the worship of Caesar there because Caesar had made him king. And there was also a temple to the worship of Pan. Do y'all know who Pan is? He's the Greek god of shepherds and of the wild, half man, half goat. He had a temple there. And before too long, a temple for Zeus would be built in the same complex, so thoroughly pagan and as religiously and spiritually diverse and syncretistic as anywhere in Israel. So somewhat like Austin in the midst of Texas. And it's there that Jesus asked his disciples two questions. First of all, who do people say that I am? In the midst of all of this this religious syncretism and diversity and all these various opinions of me, who do people say that I am? And they offer an explanation given the surroundings and the the, the diversity there. But then he says, but who do you 
say I am. And it's plural. It's to the disciples. Who do you all say that I am? Something that I'm sure Jesus still asks us today in the midst of all of the the religious and spiritual eclecticism and syncretism around us and all the varied options about who Jesus is that we hear day in, day out. And he expects a different answer from us, by the way, just as he did of the disciples, based upon all that we've seen and heard and learned of him. And Peter, at this highest moment in his life, he answers for all the disciples. He says, you are the Christ. Christ is a Greek word that basically translates Messiah. So you are the Christ. Uh, And that's exactly how Mark began his gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christ. So finally, eight chapters in, they get it. They finally know and see a little bit more than the crowds. They do, but they also don't because Peter's rebuke of Jesus comes immediately on that. In fact, it's a part of the same conversation. So Peter and the disciples get that that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't get what it means for him to be the Messiah and their Messiah. So they see and they don't see. That's the first part of the context we have to understand. The second part is related to that first part, and it's immediately before that Caesarea Philippi context and story. Immediately before that, in verses 22 through 26, I didn't print it, so just follow along. Immediately before that, while still in Bethsaida, Jesus does a miracle. And it's unlike any other miracle that he ever does in all of the gospel, especially in the book of Mark, because he heals a man in two touches or in two stages. And I want you to think about that. Because does Jesus need more than one touch to heal? So often he, he heals without any touch at all. So, so he just says a word and people are healed. So he doesn't need one touch, must, much less two. And in the first touch, Jesus spits on the man's eyes which makes me feel kind of sorry for him because so many other people got healed with just a word. This man gets spit upon his eyes. It's better than what happens in Matthew or Mark chapter seven, where a mute man gets healed and Jesus spits on his tongue. So I feel sorry for those men, but Jesus is operating within the cultural framework because Jewish rabbis thought that saliva, for whatever reason, had healing properties. But the point is Jesus didn't need to do that. He didn't need to spit. He didn't need to touch. He didn't need two touches. So why? And to answer that, we really, in some ways, have to read the rest of the book of Mark. We're not going to do that. We at least have to go through chapter 10 because in chapter 10, there's another healing of a blind man. It's the only two blind men in the entire book of Mark. And there, that blind man gets healed without a touch. Jesus says, your faith has made you well, and he's healed. But in between these two blind men, so much happens. They act as bookends to this travel narrative with Jesus taking the disciples to Jerusalem. And three different times, Jesus says to them on the road to Jerusalem, I am going to be betrayed when we get to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And three different times, they respond poorly. This first time is our passage where Peter rebukes Jesus. The second time is in chapter 9 where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and to die. And all the disciples argue among themselves, who's the greatest disciple? Who's going to have the most power, the most earthly power and prestige, which Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 10, James and John brothers, they come to Jesus and they have the audacity, the impudence to say, make us the greatest disciples because they're arguing. They're like, well, Jesus, just make me number one and him number two. Let him sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your glory. So what's the problem with that request? 
a lot, but at least that Jesus isn't going to a throne. He's going to a cross, and he's told them this plainly. See that word? Plainly, openly, and they don't get it because they can't see it. They see, but they don't see just like that blind man in between his two touches because Jesus spits on his eyes and he touches his eyes and he asks the man, do you see anything? And he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So he sees and he doesn't see. And that's the point. That's the disciples. Not yet fully seeing, but not yet fully blind. They know Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They see him, but they don't see him. They believe in him, but they don't believe in him. They follow him, but they don't follow him because they need another touch. They need another touch of his grace upon their souls. And so do we. Because this blind man is a parable for Mark. He's a parable of of what the Christian life always is in this life. And what the disciples in Mark are, believing and following in him, they're just like this blind man in between his two touches, and so are we. Seeing, not seeing. Believing, not believing. Following, not believing. We need another touch. We need a deeper change than what we have experienced thus far. C.S. Lewis, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in his book, there is a boy named Eustace. Do you know Eustace? Yes, you know, Eustace, he's arrogant and insecure at the same time because he's full of pride. Pride is inordinate self-focus or self-absorption. And so prideful people, they swing between arrogance and insecurity because they're always fixated upon themselves and always measuring themselves up against others. And so when they're measuring up or comparing well to others, they're arrogant and condescending. But when they're not measuring up against others around them, they're insecure and they're anxious and they swing. And that's Eustace. And it makes him mean and everyone hates him. But Eustace is magically taken to Narnia and placed on the Dawn Treader, which is the ship. And it goes to this island and and Eustace gets off the boat and walks around the island and he finds this cave. And inside this cave, there's this treasure. And he thinks, I'm rich. It's mine. I'm now powerful. And I'm gonna be able to pay back all these people who disrespected me. But then he falls asleep on the treasure. And it's a dragon's treasure. And so because he had dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he fell asleep, when he wakes up, he's become a dragon, an ugly, huge, terrible beast. And he is sadder than he has ever been in his life. But someone shows up and who shows up? Who? Aslan shows up, the great lion. And he takes Eustace to this pool of beautiful, clear water. And he tells him to undress and to get in the pool. But how does a dragon undress his scales? And this is what Eustace says later happened. He says, I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off 
just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. Then there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been before. Then he caught hold of me and threw me in the water. It smarted, which is hurt for British. Uh, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all my pain had gone. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. Point is, we all need a deeper change than we realize. We all need another touch of Jesus's grace, especially given what his calling is of us. So point three, Jesus's calling of us, our calling. What is it? What is our calling according to this passage? Well, in verses 31 through 33, Jesus reveals what it means to be the Messiah. Because immediately before this, Peter said, you're the Christ. And so now he's beginning to explain to them what it means and entails for him to be the Messiah. And it doesn't entail him riding into Jerusalem with a military to defeat the Romans and to claim the Jewish throne by force. That's not what it means. That's what they expect. That's what the disciples want especially for themselves because they want earthly power and worldly success and glory. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to an earthly throne. I'm going to a cross. And he says, I must. Do you see that word there in verse 31? Three little words or three little letters in Greek. It's the most important word of the passage, maybe the most important word in the Bible. I must. So who must? The son of man must. And we hear that, that title, the Son of Man, and we probably think that Jesus is referring to his humanity. And if we did, we would be wrong. Because the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7 in the Old Testament when a divine figure comes out of heaven with an army of angels, and he comes back to earth in order to defeat all evil, establish justice, and to set the world right. So Son of Man is one of Jesus's implicit claims for divinity in Mark. And what he's saying is at the end of time, I'm going to return. And I'm going to come back in the full power and glory of God with angels upon angels, myriads upon myriads. And I will make all things new. I will punish all evil. I will purge all sin in its presence from mankind. I will raise bodies and return souls to bodies. I am God in the flesh. That is who I am. That's what I'm going to do. But first I must suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise. So why? If that's who he is, why must he, God in the flesh, suffer? And there's two errors that I think people make with Christianity and the gospel, especially during Lent. I'm going to close with those two errors. Here's the first. I think many think that if they are good enough and suffer enough, then they can set their own relationship with God right and be forgiven. And they can't because of what forgiveness is. Remember, What I often tell you forgiveness is, forgiveness is not paying someone back for what they've done with an equal amount of disgrace and hurt that they have caused you in their wrong against you. And that's what forgiveness is because with any sin or any wrong done, a debt is created. So if someone slashes your tire, you have two options. You either make him pay, he apologizes, you make him pay 300 bucks for your tire, and then you're reconciled. But you're not reconciled through forgiveness because he didn't pay, or you can be reconciled, but you're reconciled because you don't make him pay, you pay. 
you absorb the cost. That is reconciliation through forgiveness. It's not making them pay. And friends, listen, this is probably the most important thing that I'll say today. And that is God owns your soul. He created you body and soul in his image and you belong to him regardless if you acknowledge that or not. And you slashed your soul and ruined it with sin. So did I, we all did. Which raises the question, how much is a soul worth? How much is your soul worth? And can you pay for it? How much is the soul of an image bearer of God worth? Jesus tells us here in verses 36 and 37, because what does he say? He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose his soul? In other words, is that enough? Is it enough for a man to gain the whole world and all wealth and all success and power and fame in this world to be king of the world? Is that enough to pay the debt of his soul? And Jesus says, no, because what can a man pay in return for his soul ruined by sin? The answer is nothing. The whole world isn't worth enough to pay for one's soul. That is why God has to absorb the cost because it's only the sacrifice of God himself that is worth enough to pay for you and for your soul, which he has done. He did not by going to a throne, but by going to a cross, by going to the cross and suffering the full weight and the full consequence of all the wrong done by you, by me, by everyone. And that is how much he loves you. That is the main point. He loves you that much and wants you that much that he's willing to pay more than the entire world is worth for you. Do you think, can you imagine that God loves you that much? The other error that people make with the gospel is to think, well, okay, I believe that. I believe that because Jesus suffered and died for me and for the forgiveness of my sins and reconciliation, restitution with him, then, and he did that on the cross, Therefore, I have no cross to bear in this life. And that is not true. An essential part of trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross is bearing whatever lesser cross he might lay upon you, whatever it may be. Some suffering, some unfulfilled desire, some rejection that you have known, some offense or persecution by someone because you're a Christian, some form of self-denial, some sadness, some difficult service, loving a difficult person or forgiving someone of an egregious wrong that they have done against you and you absorb it. You don't make them pay because you believe that God paid for you. And that friends, that is Jesus's calling to bear in faith and in hope and in love, whatever particular burden he has for you to bear right now. That's his calling. And let me be as clear as possible. And that is that the bearing of the lesser crosses, it doesn't bring about God's forgiveness and his acceptance of you. That is set. That is set through that which he has done on the cross. But bearing lesser crosses does bring about God's transformation of you. Those lesser crosses, when you bear them in faith, they are Jesus's claws to peel away all of the dragonish remains of sin and death that we all possess and to make us new. Remember what Eustace said. He said, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Some of you know that right now. It hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it 
was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled away. Bearing any cross in this world hurts, but there is a greater pain, overwhelming pleasure that comes in and through them. And so believe the gospel, friends. Believe the good news that that God the Son, the Son of Man, had to suffer, had to die, had to rise, and he has. Believe that and take up your cross, each of you, by the power of the Spirit who's been given to you, and bear it, whatever it is. And I know what some of you are thinking and what some of you are wondering. You're wondering, okay, Tim, you don't know my cross. How long do I have to bear it? And honestly, I don't know. But I do know that in the ancient world, people carried their crosses until they eventually died on them. Crosses are carried to the end until you lose your life upon them. But remember what Jesus says, that whoever loses his quote unquote life, whatever that was that feigned and faked and facaded as true life without Christ, whoever loses that life for Jesus's sake, trusting in him will save his life. That is our hope. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would administer your grace to us this morning through your word, through your sacrament, uh, that we might have that second touch, that additional, that next touch, which we need to continue to believe in you and follow you to more fully see and to know you as you are. We thank you for your great love for us, being willing to pay all things for us that we might be here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.